Psalm 107. You'll find Psalm 107 on page 506 if you're using one of the Bibles that are in the backs of the chairs. So you can turn there. If one of those Bibles would serve you this morning, please help yourself. And if you'd like to take it home with you, please do. If you'd like to give it to somebody else, please do. Well, while June 20th is the official start of what we consider the summer season, and that hasn't arrived yet, we are in June, even though you wouldn't know it by looking outside or stepping out there, and school's out, and the summer is sort of here, and that means that we're back in the Psalms. It has been a joy these last several years to spend a summer in Psalms, and for the next 12 weeks, we're going to do the same thing we've done the last several years, cherry-pick our way through book five, although in previous years we've done four, three, two, and one. And uh, starting f- next week, we're going to benefit from the preaching ministry of several other men in our body as well, including our other two pastors, Brian and Paul, as well as some other men like my dad uh, and Brandon and John Middlebrook later on in the summer. John's uh, and Brandon's preaching ministry has never been on display here before, but both Brian and Paul and my dad have preached here multiple times, and so you'll get to enjoy some men you have heard before, but not as often, and you'll get to enjoy the preaching ministry of some men who you haven't heard before. I've heard John preach before because of our preaching cohort over in the last, in, in the fall, and you all who have been here for E412 have heard Brandon teach for the last month, so I'm confident that the Lord has a rich feast in store for us through this summer. Now, as we begin our time together in the Psalms this summer, I'd like to refresh our collective memories regarding some important contextual notes when it comes to reading and understanding the Psalms. Three notes. There's some other things that can be said, but three main notes for you. The first is that Psalms are poems. They are songs. They're different from other scriptural genres, including what we have been in most recently in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew is filled with stories and parables and accounts of the teaching of Jesus and some others. The truth revealed through Matthew's gospel about who Jesus is and the need for him because of our sin and the kingdom of God breaking into the world through his servant, Jesus of Nazareth. But the Psalms are different. They're not narrative. They're not stories, at least not in the same way. Sometimes there's a bit of a story being told, but The genre is poetry. They're poems that the people of God sang in worship, both privately in their own minds and hearts and in their own families at home and as well as with uh, the, the rest of the people of God. These poems were written by a handful of authors throughout Old Covenant history, including Moses and David and Asaph and the sons of Korah. They're poems that artistically and emotionally and beautifully communicate truths about God and man and sin and redemption and restoration and sorrow and fear and hope and joy. If you're reading the book of Exodus, you're reading a story. If you're reading a letter from Paul, you're reading first century Greek correspondence that takes place after the resurrection of Christ. If you're reading Revelation, you've got to read it as apocalyptic literature, not a literal historical account of something. And when you read the Psalms, it's important to note its poetic elements. 
and to recognize that going from Hebrew poetry to American eyes and ears is going to have its unique challenges and joys. So that's the first. Psalms are poems. Secondly, the Psalms should be understood in their original context. While the Psalms certainly have implications and applications for us in our context, 2023 Brighton, Colorado, the actual setting and context in which they were originally written is not the same as ours, and we need to remember that. Because if we're too quick to plug in a psalm to summer 2023 in our town, we may wind up a bit askew from the actual original meaning. And that doesn't mean, again, that there aren't applications for us. I'm eager to see what the Lord is going to do in our lives and in our families and in our church in our modern-day context through the texts of these ancient poems. But even as we anticipate contemporary application and enjoy discussing them in our fellowship groups, let's seek to avoid reading our own situation into passages where they may not actually belong and seek to understand them in their original context. The third is perhaps the most important one, and that is that the Psalms point to Jesus. Ultimately, the Bible is not about us. It's about Jesus. And that applies to the Psalms too. And so when reading a psalm or the Psalms, we must seek to avoid trying to understand, quote unquote, what it means to me. The Psalms are ultimately pointing us to Jesus. Some psalms are more clearly connected to Jesus than others, but every one of them has a connection to Christ. Sometimes it could be through the anticipation of how Christ would come to redeem his people later in Jewish history with a look at how God had redeemed his people in that period of Jewish history. Sometimes we can see in the psalms that we too, like the psalmists, can burst into praise because of God's love for us in our context through the incarnation and death and resurrection of Christ. Sometimes the Psalms are going to remind us that just as the psalmists suffered and cried out to God in their distress, so did Jesus for us. Well, those are the three contextual reminders that I hope will refresh our memory as we jump into this summer. One last thing I want to say before we begin looking at our psalm, and that is to encourage all of you to make use of two really important resources as you perhaps take these psalms home and look at them on your own, or if you just want to enjoy some of the other psalms along with us this summer. The first is a two-part commentary by a guy named Derek Kidner. If you haven't heard of him, write his name down. Check out his two-part commentary. Not very big. Sometimes you hear commentary and you think of a book like this thick. It's not like that. They're two, two volumes about this big each. You can easily turn to a psalm and get some very helpful sound commentary. The other is going to be a lot easier for you. The second resource I would encourage you to make use of is one of your pastors, Brian. He is an expert in Old Testament and in the Psalms particular. Not only is he an expert in the Psalms, he loves them very much. And we've enjoyed over the last couple of years talking about the Psalms. So anytime you have a question, if you think I said something that sounds a little fishy, check with him and he'll, he'll get it right for sure. 
And if you don't check for something fishy, he is already. So check with him. He'll be able to help you out. Okay, as it relates to the psalm before us today, Psalm 107. Psalm 107, we don't know exactly who the author is. It seems clear, though, that it was written in a post-exile context. In other words, after the children of Israel's exile was ended and they had come back to Jerusalem after the Babylonian oppression. The primary contextual clue for, uh, that makes that case for us is verses 2 and 3, where it says that the Lord redeemed his people from trouble and brought them in from the lands and then gives us some dimensions, the east and west and north and south dimensions. And it's important for us to understand Psalm 107 in that context We're not looking at a poem written by David on the fields of the countryside of Israel. We are not looking at a situation with Moses, perhaps after crossing the Red Sea. We are looking at an outburst of praise from the people of God after God had brought them back. After years of waiting for God's deliverance from foreign invaders who God had used to judge his people because of their unfaithfulness to him, they had been delivered and restored to Jerusalem. They were redeemed, they were saved, and so they praised God. Now there is an argument to be made that Psalm 103 is part, Psalm 107, excuse me, is part three of the grouping of Psalm 105, 106, and 107 together. The traditional and even ancient divisions of the Psalms between Book 4 and Book 5 would make a case against that, but it's hard to ignore the fact that Psalm 105 and Psalm 106 similarly have no author and describe various situations that the people of God were in and his grace to them in that period of their history. And especially because Psalm 106, you probably have it right there in front of you, ends with a prayer to God that matches, or at least goes well with, the beginning praise to God in Psalm 107. Look at verses 47 and 48 of 106. Save us, O Lord our God. Gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. And then look at verse 2 and 3 of Psalm 107. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, which is verse 1. Give thanks to the Lord. Let the redeemed of the Lord give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, or the nations, like in verse 47 of the previous psalm. Now, regardless of whether or not the grouping of 105, 106, and 107 was humanly intended, there is a great benefit for us to read all three with all three in mind and to see what Psalm 107 says in light of what 5 and 6 say. And what Psalm 107 is essentially saying is that God is worthy of praise because he has sovereignly saved his undeserving people because of his steadfast love. God is worthy of praise because he has sovereignly saved his undeserving people because of his steadfast love. Psalm 107 has a four-part structure, and here's how I see it. I have it on the screen in front of you. The first is this introduction, this sort of call to worship in the first three verses. Don't worry, I'm going to shift the slide, but you'll see the, you'll see the outline again as we go. 
The first part is this proclamation of God's steadfast love. We've considered this for just a moment already. We read it together at the beginning of our service, but let's read verses 1 through 3 together again. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. If indeed Psalm 105 and 106 are connected to 107, then these verses come on the heels of a cry for salvation. And they begin with an indication that the prayer for salvation has been answered. Let the, verse 2, let the redeemed of the Lord, those whom he has redeemed from trouble, say so. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love. In other words, God had redeemed his people just as they had prayed he would. How? Verse 3, by gathering them from the east, west, north, and south. In other words, bringing them back from their various scattered locations. The people of God had been scattered, but God had returned them. Why? Because verse 1, his steadfast love endures forever. Some of you may already be aware of this, but that phrase, steadfast love, is one of the most important and frequent phrases in the Old Testament and in all of Scripture, you could say as well. It is the word in Hebrew, chesed. The word chesed does, means steadfast love, can be translated steadfast love. But when you see the phrase steadfast love in your Old Testament, remember that it does not simply mean what we tend to mean when we use the word love. In our setting, love, that word, is often reduced to mere feelings of warmth or affection or those ooey-gooey tummy things that happen when you've got a crush on someone. Those are good things. Those are things that God has designed, but they are not at the heart of the word chesed. The word love is also, frankly, misused in our culture to describe sinful desires and actions. Sometimes when people use the word love, they are simply referring to lust. And that could be either hetero or homosexuality. But chesed of God, the steadfast love of God, blows all of that out of the water in terms of meaning and action. And so in Hebrew, and therefore in the Old Testament, chesed describes, you see it there on the screen, faithful covenant loyalty. Faithful love. Loyal Love, specifically in the context of a covenant between God and his undeserving people. And so what Psalm 107 opens with is not a call to praise God merely for his love. That's certainly true about God. He is love and he is loving. But rather, this is a call to praise God for his faithfulness to fulfill his covenant promises to his people. His promise is to care for and bless and make a great nation out of unworthy 
unlovely people and to bless the whole world through the blessings that he bestows on those people. It's exactly what God was doing when he redeemed his people from slavery in Egypt, and that is detailed in Psalm 105. It's what God was doing when he did not destroy his people after the golden calf incident, which is detailed in Psalm 106. And it is what he was doing when he restored his people to Jerusalem after the end of their captivity in Psalm 107. As I said a moment ago, that is what this phrase in verse 3 refers to. Gathered in from the lands, and then these three uh, these directional terms in verse 3. The east and west and north and south terms represent the whole world. However, actually, the Hebrew word that is translated, if you have an ESV like I do in front of you, the word south actually could be translated the sea, like an ocean type of a sea. It's actually what that Hebrew word means. And if you translate it that way, it carries some additional and helpful meaning. It certainly makes sense that the translators would want to complete the four-part directional terms here. But understood in its Hebrew sense of the sea, the north and from the sea, would have communicated to the people of God that he, God, had delivered his people from threats to the north, which would have been Assyria, the ancient Jews would have thought of as Babylon and Assyria, and had delivered them from the sea, which ancient Jews would have understood as a place of chaos, a place of danger, a place of unpredictable and troubling large bodies of water that to any civilization count as a, a risk, not the least of which an ancient civilization. And so here's another example why we do want to read and under understand the Psalms as poetry. The image of a sea is quite normal in poetry. And the north and south and west and east directional points do communicate God gathering his people from all over the world, from their all of their scattered locations, from all over the map. But I think that this north slash sea language may fit even better, particularly in the context of what we see in the rest of the psalm too, as we'll see in just a moment. So the point that the psalmist is making is that from east to west, from every corner of the globe, and from the north and from the sea, places where opposition and danger and uncertainty lie in wait to harm God's people, he has redeemed them because of his hesed, his steadfast love. So that's first, the proclamation of God's steadfast love. The second is the plight of mankind in sin and weakness. And we see that in verses 4 through 32. We've got four scenes in these verses, four examples of God redeeming his people. I'd like to read them again. Scene 1. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in, hungry and thirsty. Their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisfies the longing soul, the hungry soul he fills with good things. Scene two. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons, for they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. 
So he bowed their heads down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. He delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness in the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. For he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts into the bars of iron. Scene three. Some were fools through their sinful ways and because of their iniquities suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. And let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell his deeds in songs of joy. Scene four. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. He commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. God has delivered his people in all kinds of ways. From both sin and from the state of brokenness of this world because of sin. Now, are these four scenes before us metaphorical examples of the kind of trouble that God delivers his people from? Or are these actual examples of the trouble that the Israelites were in during their exile from which God delivered them. I'm not sure. Brian probably has an opinion, so you can ask him after during our prayer lunch. But regardless of what you conclude, the big point remains unchanged. God delivers his people from their plight of sin and weakness. Let's take a closer look. All four of these scenes have six things in common. First of all, all of them start with this word some, which is describing either a literal or metaphorical group of people. Number two, it goes on to describe some kind of plight, some kind of troubled and trying situation in which God's people find themselves. Third, all four of them say that they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and then all four say that the Lord delivered them from their distress. Then all four describe the result of the Lord's redeeming and delivering intervention. And then sixth, all four praise the Lord. Let's look at even, even a little more closely. Look at verses 4, 10, 17, and 23. What does each of those verses start with? Some. So these are four different groups of people, but the same general issue, which is that they have some sort of plight. In verses 4 and 5, this group of people have no way to a city. They're wandering in desert wastelands. They're hungry and thirsty. Their souls are fainting. 
In verses 10 through 12, we see prisoners because of their rebellion doing hard labor with no help. Verses 17 and 18, these are people who are suffering affliction, which can also simply mean sickness, because of their sin. It says they can't eat, and they draw near to death. Then in the final section, we see them riding the waves of the sea up and down. That's what that language means when it says mounting up to the heavens and then going back down to the depths. And their courage melts away. They're at their wit's end, which you could translate. They're at the end of their wisdom, which essentially refers to their skill and experience in this context as sailors. They were at the end of their seamanship. This is where I would suggest that perhaps that translation of south could be better served as a translation of the word sea. Because this fourth example speaks of a plight on the sea. So the first scene describes people who are lost, without a home, who are starving and weary. The second scene describes people who are imprisoned, captive, helpless to rescue themselves. The third scene describes people who are desperately ill and nearing death. They can't even hold down food. The fourth scene describes people in a boat coming face to face with the reality that not even their seafaring skills can save them in the face of a great storm. And that leads them to thirdly cry out to the Lord in their trouble. We see that at the beginning of verse 6, 13, 19, and 28. They're lost, so they cry out to the Lord. They're captives, so they cry out to the Lord. They're sick, so they cry out to the Lord. They're about to drown So they cry out to the Lord. And what does the Lord do each time? Same verses, 6, 13, 19, and 28, but the second half of those verses, he delivers them from their distress. The Lord rescues his people because of his steadfast love. How does he do this? First, in scene one, by taking those who are wandering and hungry and thirsty and weary and doing what? Giving them a home. In verse 7, they reached a city to dwell in. Second scene, he brings them out of their dark dungeon of captivity and into the light and sets them free. Third scene, he heals them of their affliction, of their disease, which is not merely a physical happenstance, but an illness due to their own sinful ways. Verse 17. And then the fourth scene, he calms the storm, he quiets the waters, he brings them safely home. That's what it means in verse 30. He brought them to their desired haven or their port, their place of safety. Now, when I say that these four scenes describe the plight of man in both sin and weakness, I say both sin and weakness because of that fourth scene. The first three scenes are clearly connected to the sins of God's people. In scene one, the people of God were banished out of their promised land and into a state of no city to dwell in because of their sin. In the second scene, they're taken captive by invaders. Verse 11, for they had rebelled against the words of God. 
And verse 17 tells us that this great sickness that is leading them to the brink of death is the result of foolishness. In other words, these first three problems in the first three scenes are self-inflicted. However, the fourth scene does not seem to reference or indicate or describe a self-inflicted situation. Verse 23 does say that they're doing business, but in theory, there's nothing wrong with that. You can certainly do business in a corrupt way, but the text doesn't say anything about that. Now, verse 26 does say, use the phrase, because of or in their evil plight. But that's not a reference to something evil that they've done. That's actually just describing their plight, the badness of the situation that they're in. And so what that tells me is that the plight of God's people from which they need deliverance and redemption is not only or always directly related to their sin. It often is, and it's probably safe to say it usually is, but not always. Sometimes the providence of God leads his people to a situation of great turmoil in order to show his sovereign power so that his people might know him and his rescue more intimately. And that's what the psalmist talks about next in the third section. The providence of God for the good of his people. Look at the sovereignty that the psalmist identifies in verses 33 through 42. He turns rivers into a desert. Springs of water into thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. He turns a desert into pools of water, a parched land into springs of water, and there he lets the hungry dwell, and they establish a city to live in. They sow fields and plant vineyards and get a fruitful yield. By his blessing, they multiply greatly, and he does not let their livestock diminish. When they're diminished and brought low through oppression, evil, and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless wastes. But he raises up the needy out of affliction and makes their families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad and all wickedness shuts its mouth. What was the psalmist describing before verses 33 through 42? He was describing these dangerous, painful, and troubling situations that the people of God were in. Remember? Homelessness, captivity, sickness, and a storm. And right after that, the psalmist says that it's God who turns a river into a desert. That it's God who takes a healthy land and turns it into a dead wasteland. That doesn't sound a whole lot like God delivering people from calamity, but rather making calamity. And isn't that part of what's going on in the four scenes? Didn't they wander homeless in desert wastelands because God had exiled them? Weren't they helplessly enslaved in verse 12 because God bowed their hearts down with hard labor? 
didn't God lead the sailors into the great storm? In verse 25, he commanded and raised the stormy winds. Yes, he did. So we see in verses 33 through 44, 34, that the sins of mankind can lead to the sovereign judgment of God. But then we can see in verses 35 through 38 that it is also the sovereign grace of God on display, giving blessing, extending provision, and ultimately reversing their fortunes. Okay, kids, raise your hand if you've ever played Uno. Great game. Hopefully you get to play a lot of Uno with your family this summer. And when you play as siblings, that you will play nicely. Amen, parents? Amen. It's always fun when you're playing Uno with your siblings or with your friends or with your family, and you get to this period in the game where it just seems like reverse cards are flying. It's going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. God is basically playing an Uno reverse card here. What was the situation in scene one in verses four through nine? A desert wasteland with no city to dwell in. And what does he do in verses 35 through 37? He reverses their situation. He brings rain to a dry and weary land and he gives his people a city to dwell in. He had returned the people of God to Jerusalem from their place of exile, despite the fact that it had been their sin that got them in that predicament. All because of his steadfast love, his hesed. What about the situation in scene two in verses 10 through 16? There's imprisonment, there is oppression, all because of Israel's sin. Exile. And what is God displayed as doing in verses 39 through 40? Simply because of his steadfast love, he's taking those who oppress his people and sending them into the wasteland that his people were once in. What about the situation in scene 3 in verses 17 through 22? They are sick. They are afflicted in verse 17. And what does God, what is God displayed as doing in verse 41? Raising up the needy out of sickness. They don't die, even though in that third scene it says that it is if they're going to die. Rather, their families become like flocks. They don't die, they multiply and cover the land. Even though their affliction was self-inflicted, all because of his steadfast love, his sovereign grace cares for them. Now, you may recall that just a few minutes ago, I said that there were six things that these four scenes had in common and that the sixth was a response of praise and thanksgiving from God's people when he rescued them. And I want to come back to that now. The sixth commonality in those four scenes in our second section is the people responding with praise and thanksgiving to God for his steadfast love and his covenant faithfulness. And I wanted to wait to look at this until after looking at the providence of God in verses 33 through 42, because I think we'll see it a little more clearly this way. Four times, each in each of these four scenes, verse 8, verse 15, verse 21, and verse 31, we see the people of God called by the psalm and the psalmist to praise and thank the Lord. In verse 9, 
to praise and thank him because of his satisfaction of the hungry, the weary, and the wandering. In verse 16, because of his work to set free undeserving people from their captivity. In verse 22, to praise and thank him, interestingly, by offering sacrifices of thanksgiving. This is fascinating because the sacrifices of thanksgiving were the only sacrifices that included eating some of the meat as a meal. And that's significant because these people were sick, they couldn't hold food down, and they were dying. And as the Lord heals them, they praise him by eating. And they sing songs of joy. The fourth one is in verse 32, where they praise and thank God by publicly honoring and glorifying him when they get home. And so that's a big part of why I say that this psalm teaches us that the providence of God is ultimately aimed at the good, the good of his people. We see in this psalm that the providence of God may include a good that doesn't feel good. It may include discipline and correction and a call to repent and return to him. That's good for those who need to. It may include the good that's a bit more obvious to us when he defeats the enemies of his people. It may include a good that doesn't feel good. The good that comes from the refining work of a fiery trial. The fires of trials that make us more pliable, that make us more moldable into what he intends for us. And sometimes that may be due to a hardness of heart or an anger or a stubbornness or pride or whatever. But sometimes it is just simply the goodness of God to come and bring to us that heat that's going to melt us down a little bit and make it easier for us to bend and be shaped. And it reminds me of the blacksmith forge that Findlay Edmonds has at his house. He likes to make things out of metal, and he's got to use the heat in that forge to heat up the metal to make it and sometimes bang it into a tool or into a weapon. If you want an illustration of this, you can have Finley bring all his cool things that he's made one of these days. And he's going, no, I'm not bringing all that stuff. Even though sometimes God's providence leads us to a river that's dried up into a desert, that same sovereign grace always also leads us back to where that desert becomes a spring again. Do you believe that? You've got to. That even though the providence of God may lead you to a river that has been dried up into a desert, His sovereign grace will always lead you back to where the desert returns to a spring again. It might not be in the timing that you would want. It might not be in the way that you would want. The people of Israel were exiled for a long time. But He always does. And friends, isn't that exactly what God has done for us in Christ? 
I mean, here is at least one spot where Jesus comes into focus in Psalm 107. In Jesus Christ, the ultimate, undeserved, gracious reversal of fortunes was accomplished. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might be righteous. 2 Corinthians 5.21 We who are sinners get our sins taken away even though we deserve to pay for them with death. And Jesus, who never sinned, pays the payment for our sin so that even though we don't deserve it, we might be righteous, which he is. We deserve death, he dies. He is righteous, we are made righteous simply because of his love. And so like the wastelands turned into a fruitful land by the gracious providence of God in verse 35, our dry and weary souls are transformed by the miraculous grace of God and we consequently bear fruit of a spiritual kind. And like the city that God led his wandering people to in verse 36, we who were once wandering, fumbling around, looking for satisfaction and joy in all the wrong things, deservedly lost in sin, are graciously brought not just to a city to dwell in, but to his kingdom through our union with Jesus Christ by faith. And so, verse 42, the response of the beneficiaries of such astonishing grace, both the Jews in ancient Israel and the Christians in the 21st century, is a response of gladness. A response of joy. A response of delight and satisfaction. In contrast to the wicked who can only sulk silently and eventually suffer eternally. They don't get to participate in the privilege of opening their mouths in praise and thanks for the goodness of God because they have refused it. But the people of God, those who benefit from his chesed, they praise him. They also, verse 43, 43, they ponder it. It says simply, whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. This is a brief addendum to the psalm, but it is an important one. And it tells us that those who have benefited from the steadfast love of God are wise to consider it, to attend to it. In other words, to give attention to it. Like the psalmist did in writing 107, like the Jews did when they sang it, like we do when we read it and listen to it and preach it and pray it. And so the wise ponder, they consider the steadfast love of God. I want to leave you with five ways that we can consider and ponder and praise the Lord because of his steadfast love. The first is that we ought to consider the call to worship in verses one through three, specifically verse two, where it says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. If you have an NIV with you on your phone or your Bible copy, it actually says, let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story. And I love that. 
friends, Psalm 107 was a call to the Jews to tell their story. And in our context, we are called to tell our story, the context, the story of God's steadfast love to us, to tell of how he rescued us from being lost, from captivity to sin, from spiritual sickness, to understanding what his sovereign grace has done and his sovereign power reveals to us. And so, a question I ask each of us. What is your ratio of complaint to praise? Are you more likely, when someone asks you the generic greeting of how you're doing, to tell a story of complaint or a story of praise? There was a member of our church years ago named Pepe who, without fail, if you asked how he was doing, would say, I'm blessed. I mean it without fail. And he was not fake, certainly not a sinless man. And he was willing to share his difficulties and the trials that they had in their lives that were very real. But he always seemed to retain a gospel perspective that despite all the things that were frustrating, troubling, confusing, hurtful, sorrowful, and suffering, he was blessed because of what God had done for him in Christ. Second, consideration for you is to consider these four scenes in Psalm 107 as examples of how God has saved his people because of his steadfast love. But each of those examples, whether they're literal or metaphorical, are mere shadows of the deliverance and salvation that God has brought to us all through Jesus Christ. So remember, friends, our story of God's steadfast love to us has Jesus at the center. If you, listen, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you have been saved, if your life has gone from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, you can say with joy that because of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, you have been delivered. And knowing that and believing that and pondering and praising God for that will transform the way you look at every threat on your life, every battle with sickness, every season of trial. Third, consider verses 11 and 17. They rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. And then in verse 17, some were fools through their sinful ways and because of their iniquities suffered affliction. Isn't it true that so often people, including us, are in the predicaments that we're in because of our own foolishness and sinfulness? And it's certainly not always the case, but isn't it often the case and even in situations where we can't tie whatever is happening to some direct word that came from our mouth or some direct action that we took, we could, if we looked very carefully, trace back to various decisions we've made along the path of our life that have an effect on where we're at right now. What I'm saying is, friends, that part of considering and being thankful for the steadfast love of God has got to include our own recognition that we don't deserve it the punishment for sin that we were headed for was what we deserve. The suffering that we experience in our daily lives is not always, but 
often a result of our own sinful and foolish choices. And being rescued and redeemed by God because of his steadfast love is not this sort of, oh, isn't that nice sort of a thing. It's an astonishing thing because we don't deserve it. Fourth, consider the providence of God to bring a perilous storm to his people in verses 24 through 25. Who is in charge of that storm? He raised the stormy wind. Remember, I said a few minutes ago that the plight of God's people isn't always due to their sin. Sometimes the providence of God leads his people to a situation of turmoil in order to show his sovereign power so that his people might know him and his rescue more intimately. Look at verse 24. They saw the deeds of the Lord his wondrous works in the deep. That's why God brought the storm. So that they would see the Lord's work. So that they would see the sovereign God at work in the deep, in the depths of their trial. These sailors in the fourth scene, whether they're metaphorical or literal, are brought by providence to a place where they will see God's power in a situation in which they are totally helpless. And so another question. If you are in the middle of some kind of storm, are you seeing, thinking of that storm as something that God has brought you to on purpose because he is good as an opportunity for you to see the deeds of the Lord and his wondrous works in the deep. Friends, the steadfast love of God is his faithful, covenant, loyal love, which means it's always at work. It never fails, even in the middle of a storm. He delivered his people from the exile faithfully. But he planned for them to go through it first. You can't see God's works in the deep without being in the deep. Fifth, consider the already and not yet elements of this passage for us in our context. The situation behind Psalm 107 is a real one, is a historical point in Jewish history. Israel had been exiled, and they had returned. And the steadfast love of God was really behind what really happened. But did Israel never need deliverance ever again? No. Was all of their sin dealt with? They never sinned again. There were no more enemies of Israel. There were no more painful providences. No. And so part of what Psalm 107 is ultimately pointing us to is something even greater than the physical deliverance that the children of Israel experienced from exile. Psalm 107 ultimately points to the spiritual deliverance that people from all nations can have through faith in Jesus Christ. And that includes you. If you never have, you can turn to Jesus in faith and repentance today and know the redemption that Psalm 107 speaks of. Freedom from sin, 
a home in the kingdom of God, a satisfied spiritual hunger and thirst, the healing of your diseases, literally and spiritually, because you will be healed spiritually now, and if you have to wait your whole life dealing with physical trials till the day you die, you will still be healed, because one day you will stand in the presence of the Lord with no sickness of any kind. If you've never trusted in Christ and you have questions about how you can follow him and experience his deliverance, please come speak to me after the service. I or one of our elders or perhaps even someone else would be happy to talk to you about that. Well, friends, the summer has begun, and so let us make it a summer filled with pondering and praising God because he has sovereignly saved his undeserving people because of his steadfast love. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, please give us grace to consider your steadfast love. There are multiple people in this room who are going through some kind of a storm, some kind of affliction, some kind of opposition from which they need deliverance. There are people in this room who have never perhaps been spiritually delivered. And so I am praying that for any who has never trusted in you, that today would be the day. And I am praying for all my brothers and sisters in this room who are suffering, who are struggling, that they would consider your covenant, faithful, loyal love to them in Christ and rejoice. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's just take a minute or two to continue in prayer quietly in our hearts in response to God's This one who does whatever he puts his hand to.